KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is gun violence. In recent days, a seven-year-old boy was shot and killed. A six-year-old girl was shot and is now in the hospital. And more than 100 kids have lost their lives this year because of gun violence. The city can't arrest its way out of the problem, so what's happening on the streets? Some had assault rifles, some had handguns. I mean, it was something I got of a movie. Our kids are hearing a whole bunch of gun shooting going back and forth. And what are some community solutions? Then they're working on the biggest revitalization project ever in North Philly. But now they're squatters. They intend to start construction. The Philadelphia Housing Authority lays out its plans to get back on track with the Charleswood project. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the uptick in gun violence in Philadelphia. In recent days, seven-year-old Zamar Jones was shot. He later died. And a six-year-old girl was shot in the chest while at a cookout. She's now in stable condition. But more than 100 kids have lost their lives due to gun violence this year alone. Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw says the city cannot arrest its way out of the problem and that the community needs to step up. What's happening on the streets? And what would a community solution look like? With me today, discuss this flashpoint is Robert Warner, director of Philadelphia Cure Violence. We also have Philadelphia Police Inspector Derek Wood, finally Sarita Lewis, a youth advocate and founder of Urban Seek. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with Inspector Wood and then I want to go to Robert. Uh, what is happening here? We've seen such an uptick in the number of shootings, well over a thousand this year alone. I think it's a combination of different things. I think we have a problem with gun culture in the city where it's become popular to um, carry a gun and shoot a gun. And I think that um, until that is addressed and people start to speak up about that and that people know it's not cool to carry a gun, it's going to be issues in the city. Um, since I've been on the job 22 years now, when we have shootings, you see more people showing up, more people carrying guns. When they do shoot, they have extended magazines. So there are more opportunities for them to hit innocent bystanders. As you saw a couple of weeks ago, it was seven people showed up to shoot someone. I mean, they all had different guns. Some had uh, assault rifles, some had handguns. I mean, it was something I got out of a movie um, when they pulled up and all got out different cars that, that approach a corner to shoot. And those things are things that we can't stand for as, uh, as a city. And Philly is better than that until the community speaks up and says enough is enough is going to continue. And Robert, I know you are in the streets. Part of what you guys do at Cure Violence is interrupt the violence. What are you seeing? Yeah, I, I totally agree with Inspector because we can't do it by ourselves. And I honestly can tell you that the guys who's, you know, who's doing the shooting, when, when you go up to them and you tell them to put the guns down, first thing they say to you, why would I put my gun down when they're not putting their guns down? So it's a combination, you know, us being out there and guys like myself not being scared to speak up to these young guys, not scared, to, you know, to talk to them. A, a lot of these guys really don't want to be out here shooting because these guys don't really have education. They don't have no role models. They role models is the ones who's passing the guns to them. So it's, it's like you said, it's, it's about the community speaking up and helping. Yeah. Until the community help us out, then it's going to continue. 
Yeah. And Sarita, I want to bring you in here because, I mean, just hearing the kids, just seeing mm -hmm. the kids cry, afraid to even be a child yes. outside, or if they go anywhere or do anything, they're getting gunned down too. I get so sad for our children to have to grow up in an, in a, in an experience like this. Like I talk to our kids a lot and, um, you know, we did a project two weeks ago at the West Mill Creek Playground, and we really needed to make sure we had community buy-in to do it. And um, so we actually did an art project. I had the kids at a table doing an art project, and I was talking to this one little boy. I said, so what do you think? What do you think about what we're doing? Because he, you know, was in it, and he was active, and he just shrugged. And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, all the people on my block said that they was going to help, and none of them did. And so it kind of went with that whole thing of our adults are not really supporting the kids and are letting our kids down. Um, I had another little girl who said that she's petrified when she goes to school. So she's kind of glad that she's not in school right now because there are days like you never hear about the lockdowns in the classrooms that our kids go through. You hear about it in schools that are not underserved, but you don't hear about our kids who are hearing a whole bunch of gun, gun shooting going back and forth and they're ducking underneath their desks and then supposed to go back to business as usual. Yeah. And that's literally, they're living in a shooting gallery. And that has an impact. And, and I want to kind of talk about that because we thought, and, and people, members of the media, everybody thought that violence would go down because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and we thought, you know what, people aren't going to be out, you know, this is good. We'll see a, a downwards, you know, tick in the number of shootings and violent crime. Um, but inspector Wood, I mean, that hasn't been the case. How has, um, the pandemic and then the civil, civil, uh, unrest, how has that impacted, uh, the, the, the violence and the law enforcement ability to, to take tackle it? Well, the pandemic has um, the people who you know work from home, they're in a home during the daytime, but the people who are up to no good, they have more opportunities to see each other. They have nothing to do. You can't go to the movies. You can't go to the mall, things like that. So you see each other and you go outside. And a lot of times the only people outside are people up to no good. So you see each other. There's more opportunities, less witnesses, less traffic. And they feel emboldened to let me take a chance now to get this guy or get this girl I've been looking for. And I think that's why we see an increase in shootings. Um, because we have other, every other crime, like robbery, burglary, uh, those types of crimes, they're down for the year. When it comes to gun violence and shootings, they're up. And I think that's because more of them are out on the street and they see each other and they take opportunity because there's less traffic and less um, pedestrian traffic and also vehicular traffic. They take it as opportunity to take their chance to, um, to shoot each other. So, I mean, that's something, I think that's a, one of the major uh, reasons. And also we have people who are you know, released, from, released from prison because, because of the COVID. So you have more people being released. You have people on the street who have, don't have a lot to do and they use this opportunity to uh, shoot other people. Yeah. And, and so does it impact your ability, Robert, to get in the streets and do your job? Has, has all that has been happening impacted you guys? Um, it, it impacted as, as far as us being traumatized um, a little bit more, especially when it comes to, you know, when we see these kids out here um, that's getting shot and then, you know, we actually spend time with the family and we see how the family uh, is hurting so bad to where as though, you know, they scared to even speak up. Um, but, but like I say, it's, it's like, like uh, Mr. Wood said, it's, 
these guys have more time on their hand. Like, they sit around, there's nothing for them to do, so they make something for them to do. You know, and, and unfortunately, like you say, when they see each other, is is on site. You know, at one time, it used to be a cold, whereas though, you know, when mothers and, and daughters is, you know, there is you can't shoot. But now these, these young guys that's grown up now, they taking these pills, they doing all other kinds of stuff, and their brain is not functioning like a normal person. So they just on go at any time. They don't care. So it, it's, it, it's really hard out here, you know, when, you, when you're trying to talk to these guys and try to talk these guys down, you know, to put these guns down and, and you know, think about what's going to happen before you shoot that gun. So we just need, we need guys like me to really, really focus on being out here and spending lots of time out here in these streets to talk these guys down. Yeah. And, and Sarita, how are you able to reach community? Because part of, you know, the work is, I mean, all these communities are being traumatized. A lot of the people who end up becoming shooters were victims at some point. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, part of it is like, we're dealing in co with this COVID pandemic and people who would typically be in school at certain hours, they're no longer there. And, you know, um, so I've actually been working with City of Dreams Coalition. Uh, we do a lot of community activity around the city focused on stopping the violence. And we are going to be, um, we've been actively shaping out a program uh, that starts next week where we are touching our youth that are in the community. We're going to be doing workshops with them. Some, and most of it will be virtual um, with the intention of helping them to understand the impact of the things that are happening in their lives and being supports to them as adults. So yeah, like I go out into the streets and I talk to our kids, but you know, we also have a responsibility to tackle them in any way that we can. So developing the workshops, uh, getting people that um, have voices that they are familiar with uh, to help elevate what our kids are thinking about is also important. And also, we're creating these podcasts to allow for our youth to understand that their voices must be elevated as well. Because a lot of these kids do not feel like anybody cares about what they think, how they feel. And, and I want to kind of go back to this issue of guns, because mm -hmm. guns are so prevalent. How do you tackle this, Inspector? How do you, why are these uh, weapons so available but the short answer is, is that Americans love guns. We love, we have, I think we have more guns than any other country in, in the world. And, you know, a lot of people get guns and you get tired of that gun and they want to get rid of it. And we have a lot of guns on the black market. And we also have this thing called 80% guns. We can buy a gun that's untraceable. Mm -hmm. It's not, not put together. And those we add guns, 20 yeah. together and we get, we recover those guns. We had one guy last year who had 41 of those guns. Obviously, he's not going to keep all those guns. He's going to sell some of those guns on the street. Till the laws are changed, guns are going to be prevalent. But... The laws we do have on the books, we have to enforce those. It should be consequences when you're carrying a gun illegally on the streets of Philadelphia. Too often people, there are not enough consequences for that. So they're getting guns. We locked up people on a Tuesday uh, for a gun and they're back out the next day. And then we arrest them again two days later for a gun. I think that's something that we have to look at. And I think that some changes have been put in place. Um, I know DA's office is now asking for a higher bell for some of these guys um, and girls who are caught with guns to keep them off the street for a little while. Uh, maybe they'll, they'll calm them down a little bit because I think before it was a revolving door where they're being caught with guns and it wasn't enough consequences. And as a result, they felt emboldened to carry those guns. And I think that, it, that, it, that maybe have contributed to the increase in the number of shootings. But I think that moving forward, hopefully the, um, the increased consequences will um, slow it down a little bit.
I agree with him. I think, like you said, you know, these guys could call these guns and, you know, they out they out in two days and, and the same day that they out, they back picking the gun up again. His laws need to be a little bit stiffer than, than what they is. Uh, one of the things that I have tried to do is I have some judges that call me and, and they let me know that they, we have a first time offender that's been caught, that got caught with a gun. Can Can we work with them? And we have taken these guys on and got these guys' jobs and changed these guys' lives. So, I mean, you know, it's programs out here that will help these guys, but it got to be some type of stipulation for them to, you know, to sign off saying that they won't carry these guns and put them on a stiffer probation than, than what they is getting because they're getting right out and picking the guns back up. I talked to a lot of young people who are living in fear. Kids are, like, really feeling threatened. Their lives, like, their lives are threatened. And you're right. And I would actually say that from the perspective that I've gained, the conversation around the mortality of the Black youth is never had. Very few of them think they're going to live to 16. Mm -hmm. And when you have a belief that you're not going to live to age 16, everything that you do is borrowed time, your ability to think very clearly about what the consequences of your actions is going to be is not heightened at all. In fact, it's lowered because the assumption is, oh, well, Something was bound to happen anyway. And anything after 16, they are reckless because they just don't see the difference. They, they, you know, there's undereducation. The school districts and underserved communities is, is, has, has not treated them well. You know, you've got housing insecurity, food insecurity. Um, you, you don't have a dearth of experiences that will allow you to move beyond where you're currently at. I don't want my child to have to come back from a whole bunch of, okay. How do so you get them before? before well, we want to get them this. before yeah. and we created ex places for them to go. But honestly, we don't have the, the kind of support from, from government and organization uh, structure yeah. to allow us to create things for our kids before they become a statistic. And, and, and this is a perfect transition because I want to transition to solutions here. I mean, last year, 18 months ago, the city had announced this huge, you know, we got this anti-violence plan. We're going to mm -hmm. give out all this money to these community groups and everything is going to change. This is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And then of course, now, over the past two years, we've seen it go in the opposite direction. How do we move to real solutions to say, okay, well, we're going to, the numbers, we're going to start dealing with this and actually implementing real solutions that, that make a dent on the number of shootings. And Derek, we'll start with you and we'll open it up. How do we get this and get community involved? So one of the things that came out of Office of Violent Prevention is a new GVI program. That's a group violence intervention program. And what we do there is basically we look at uh, a lot of the violence in the city is, um, is uh, from people who are involved in groups. So we look at those groups. We see who is influential in that group. So people who are the, the shot callers, the ones who are the follow leaders in those groups. And um, we go, we talk to them. We're, and also that's a, um, many organizations are involved in that. The sheriff's office, the DA's office, probation and parole, social services, the mothers of murder victims. And we actually doing it right now as I'm having this interview. They're out there now knocking on doors. We go to their homes, we talk to them. We let them know we're here to help you out. What do you need? You need a GED, you need a job, job training, housing, um, food insecurity. Um, we let them know we're here to support them. It can take it or leave it. But either way, the good shooting has to stop. And if it doesn't stop, we're going to take the full force of everything we have, all the things at our disposal and make it uncomfortable for you and your friends. So it has to stop. So 
we just started that last week. It's the second time we're doing it. Um, hopefully it's successful. It's been successful in other cities. Um, so I think that as we're fine tuning this program, it'll work out in the long run because people say sometimes like um, we we're saying earlier that they need our help. They need programs, things like that. So we're bringing them all to your door and we do call our number and reach out for help. You're put at the front of the line. So if you need a job, we can get you a job fairly quickly. Um, if you need to get a GED, we can get you in a program. Um, COVID pushed that back. That's supposed to start earlier this year, but it just kicked off last week. So we're looking forward to see how um, have the same success that you had in other cities. So I think what I've seen so far, I've been encouraged by it. And so I know, um, Robert and Sarita, I know, uh, Robert, specifically, you guys interrupt uh, this. How do you see solutions to kind of like get everybody to, to kind of put the guns down at the same time? I think my solution is all these groups and programs need to understand that we all on the same mission. We're not here to bash each other who's doing that and who's doing this. We're here to try to solve the problem. And solving the problem is you have to be out there doing the work. Not just saying that, okay, I got millions of dollars over here for this group to do this. Okay, is this group really out here? You have to spend time out on these streets talking to these guys. Not just when there's a, a, a shooting and, and media come out. Okay, what about the 100 shootings that's over here? Yeah. So we, we try to tackle every shooting, not just one shooting. We try to tackle every shooting that's in this city. Like we out there, you see us, you ride by, you see us shooting out there. If they not out there that day, I guarantee you they'd be out there putting up posters, brochures, talking to the community, trying to see how can we solve these problems. But the main, the main thing is you have to be out in the community, not just saying you out there, you have to go out there and really be out there. You have to spend time out there. That's the only way that people are gonna get to know you. And so Sarita, how do we get all hands on deck? How do we I mean, get everybody to, to come to the table on this? Um, first of all, I mean, I fully agree. Like I, I've worked with lots of organizations over the past several years. And one of the biggest frustrations, I think, as we all navigate this space is that folks get very territorial about their space and place. And all of a sudden, like if you're in, if you're not from this neighborhood, they're offended that you want to come into the neighborhood and help them. You know, like there has to be an ulterior motive. And until we work very closely together and use our resources collectively, we're not going to experience the kind of change that we Because it's a flashpoint, unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. But I want to sort of, you know, we saw massive change uh, because of the civil unrest, right? Mm -hmm. Heads rolled, police reforms, everybody jumped up and said, you know, we're going to deal with this issue. What will it take? to get that same type of energy and approach to tackle the issue of gun violence. We need to have a, a community agenda that we, that we all agree upon, where we say we want this, this, and this, and we require it across our communities, and we actually bring folks together to cycle across the city and make sure we implement. Yeah. Derek, what do you think? What will it take to get the all hands on deck? I think that um, we need people to start go out, take the, put pressure on the people that make the decisions. Like the pressure from the unrest were put on people who make decisions. That's why NASCAR stopped having Confederate flags. Large corporations donated money. Put the pressure on people who make the decisions. If you do that, then you'll see a difference. Your thoughts, Robert, as we close out. A lot of people need to put their pride to the side and understand the mission that we all that we all are on. We all on a mission to stop the violence that's out here, but we're trying to do it separately. We need to come together and do it together. That's the only way it's gonna work. They gotta hear our voices. 
they need to understand that we really care about what's going on in, in our city. So I hope people get just as angry in a collective fashion. And I hope that they come together just like everybody came together for racism on this and that change actually happens. So I want to say thank you so much to Sarita Lewis, Derek Wood, and Robert Warner for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Thank you for thank having you. me. Next up, first COVID-19 and now homeless squatters are slowing construction of affordable housing in North Philly. There are no squatters rights in, in, in Philadelphia. The head of Philadelphia's housing authority explained why he doesn't plan to stop despite the obstacles. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is the Philadelphia Housing Authority. The agency has stayed out of the headlines during the pandemic by effectively limiting the spread, but made news in recent days when homeless families began squatting in PHA properties. Here to tell us more is Kelvin Jeremiah, president and CEO of the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Welcome to Flashpoint, Kelvin. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yes. Um, so we got to talk about the pandemic because it's had a major impact on America generally, especially the most vulnerable populations, like many of those who may live in PHA housing. How has your agency been impacted by COVID-19? Very early on in the process, uh, PHA began working very, very closely with our residents. We have about 6,000 elderly residents, many of whom have underlying health conditions and making them susceptible to, to COVID-19. And so we began um, in early March, end of February, early March, um, in doing some deep cleaning. Um, we worked with our residents to provide them with all kinds of solutions, how they can address um, the, the spread. And so we haven't seen the kind of community spread that my partners and colleagues across the country uh, have seen. Gotta ask you this, because I've been covering the progress of the Sharswood Revitalization Project. Yes. How has um, the COVID-19 pandemic, the lockdown, uh, the slow reopening and all that impacted the progress? Well, it, it had a an adverse impact from, I would say, uh, the end of March through uh, almost the middle of, of May, insofar as our being unable to conduct and finish some of the construction projects that had been started. Fortunately for us, we got a, a waiver and we went back and we were able to complete um, a couple of the phases 
uh, that were near completion. We're going to be uh, closing and breaking ground on the uh, supermarket, my hope is within the next couple of weeks. Um, the Reynolds uh, School repurposing, we closed on that a few weeks ago and uh, construction has now started. And so we're, we're, we're moving. It's a little bit slower than I had hoped, but in all of that, there is a glimmer of hope because the interest rates are a little bit better than it was before COVID. So we're taking advantage of that. But it's not all sunflowers and rainbows. I understand I that there is an encampment that has cropped up on a PHA tract of land where that grocery store is supposed to be. Yes, I will be dishonest if I didn't say that that's a real concern. But obviously, the encampment here on Ridge has brought to the forefront the issue of homelessness and affordable housing. Uh, PHA's mission is to provide affordable housing, no doubt. The encampment is on the side, as you mentioned, of the, the shopping center, uh, 100 units of, of housing. Um, it's a mixed-use, mixed-income development that, would have that will include a bank, um, an urgent care uh, center, um, supermarket, retail, parking, uh, for patrons uh, that would visit the center, residents and staff. And so it's also important to know that this is a development that is being done by an African-American um, developer in a predominantly African-American community um, and that will include housing. Um, and so from my perspective, um, the encampment is uh, preventing us from moving forward and, and doing exactly what uh, they are advocating for, more housing. And so, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm calling on them to, uh, to work with us to advocate for more resources for affordable housing um, that we can use to address uh, um, the homeless crisis that confronts Philadelphia and so many other big cities. Uh, but at the same time, there are some real things that they can do. Maria Quiones Sanchez's Housing Trust Fund for Affordable Housing that would bring $500 million towards affordable housing. Um, the HEROES Act that is sitting on uh, Mitch McConnell's desk that would bring tens of billions of dollars to provide um, affordable housing to it that would expand the Housing Choice Voucher Program that would provide funding to address the uh, deferred capital needs that we have. Um, those are real things that the encampment leaders and protesters should and could be advocating for that will have an impact to merely come to PHA demanding housing when we don't have the resources to provide it, um, I don't think is the best approach. Because there's a lot of people on the PHA uh, waiting list. Yeah, there are, there, there are some 40 plus thousand people who are having to wait anywhere from five to 10 years for housing. And so you have folks who have just come out of the woodwork, gone into uh, vacant units that we own, that we were preparing to rehab. Some of those were already being rehabbed. Others had been um, completed going into there and squatting. Um, there is no, uh, there are no squatters rights in, in, in Philadelphia. And though we have agreed to an ejectment process, I believe that their action um, undermines, uh, you know, going, uh, undermines the process that we use and is fundamentally unfair to those 40,000 people that have, that, that, have, have, that have had to wait 
all this time, many of whom, some of whom were identified to yeah, fill yeah. those units. Um, and we don't know um, who they are. We don't know whether or not they're in fact eligible for, for the, the housing that they have they're now squatting in. And they're preventing us from doing the work needed to make sure that the housing unit uh, is safe. In fact, Shari, about two weeks ago, one of the squatters um, were, was responsible for a fire that completely destroyed a, a unit, a home. Luckily, the squatter uh, was not hurt, nor were the neighbors. But now we have one less unit that is now non-viable, um, that cannot be occupied, that PHA will now be responsible for expending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to repair. Folks need to be uh, to stand in line like everyone else and let's see how we can expand the availability. And so what are the next steps um, to get this part of the project going? Well, we've been talking to the, uh, to the encampment uh, leaders. We hope to resolve their, their concerns and to find an amicable resolution. Uh, but I intend to, to close on the transaction and I intend to uh, start construction um, and give the community what it has asked for and what it has longed for for more than 60 years. I think it's fundamentally unfair to have them to continue wait. Um, no one, as you well know, was investing in, in Shawswood. There was no plan for redevelopment before PHA. And the fact that we have embarked on this um, uh, massive redevelopment initiative that is transforming the entire community, I think is a good thing and the community supports that. And the folks who are encamping are not folks from the community. Uh, they don't have an interest in resolving the issue. I think they want the issue. Um, and so it's difficult to come to a place where we can, yeah. we can you know, where cooler heads would prevail, uh, but I'm hopeful. But you're, you're planning to move forward uh, I am with this. I'm planning to move forward. And as we get ready to wrap up, I just want to point out that you guys, uh, the PHA in recent days announced um, that um, you would help those within PHA housing uh, by extending the moratorium on evictions. Explain uh, yes. how long is this and, 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 and how will this help people? Well, I announced uh, that PHA uh, would extend our eviction moratorium until March 15th, 2021. Um, the last thing I want our residents to feel is any sense of uncertainty uh, around where they are living. And so, you know, while they're making tough decisions uh, around whether to send their children back to school or whether to keep them home, um, how they're going to continue to provide uh, for their loved ones uh, in this economic environment, I did not want them to be stressing about, you know, am I also going to, to lose uh, my home? Am I going to be evicted? And so this moratorium, um, extends that time until um, March 15th next year. We're asking residents to, who might be facing financial hardships and who, for whatever reason, uh, cannot pay their rents to reach out to PHA. Please contact us um, so we can do a, uh, provide a hardship waiver so that they can get on a, on a payment plan. 
Uh, we want to work with our resident population during these trying times. To those residents who are able to pay, we say pay your rent. This does not, uh, the moratorium does not um, forgive any rents owed. Uh, you will still be responsible for your rent after the moratorium ends. But what we're saying is that we'll provide you with an opportunity to get a, a, a hardship waiver um, if you've lost income uh, over the, the COVID period, if you've had you know, unusual expenses and so you cannot make the rental payments, we'll work with you on a payment plan. But if you can pay your rent, continue to pay your rent. Uh, but we were seeing already um, a decrease in the number of people that were paying. And we, we know that that is as a result of lost income. Yeah. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were helping. And uh, this does that. Yeah, well, I want to say thank you so much to you, Kelvin Jeremiah, President and CEO of the Philadelphia Housing Authority, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue. Thanks, Sherry. Next up, they're working to raise awareness about organ donation in multi-ethnic communities. We have over 5,000 people in our region waiting for a transplant. To get the life plan for their first ever Minority Donor Awareness Month. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and August is National Minority Donor Awareness Month. And a local donor program has made it their mission to raise awareness about organ donation through outreach in multi-ethnic communities. Here to talk about their program is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, CEO of Gift of Life Donor Program, Howard Nathan. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we hear with KYW. We are all about community. August is National Minority Donor Awareness Month, and a local donor program has made it their mission to raise awareness about organ donation through outreach in multi-ethnic communities. Here to talk about their program is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, CEO of Gift of Life Donor Program, Howard Nathan. Welcome to Flashpoint, Howard. Hi, Hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm good. This is an exciting time for Gift of Life. Uh, Explain the significance of August. Well, what we've tried to do is to make sure that people are aware that it's their neighbors who benefit from organ transplantation. There are many, many people waiting for and particularly a kidney transplant or a liver transplant. So we want to bring awareness. We have over 5,000 people in our region waiting for a transplant. Uh, More than half are people of color. Yeah. And let's talk about um, the issue specifically in communities of color, um, because people of color, you said more than half of the folks waiting. Uh, How the donations? uh, Are a lot of people donating or signing up to be donors from these communities? More and more people are saying yes to organ donation. Uh, The Gift of Life region is the most generous community anywhere in the United States. Last year, uh, we led the country for the 12th year in a row of the number of organs and transplants for uh, people in our region. Certainly because there's a waiting list and people pass away waiting on that waiting list, we wanna make sure that people know that they can take action while they're getting their new driver's license or signing up on our website to our registry 
to make sure that people know that they can help uh, someone who's waiting? You know, a lot of people I know in communities of color, there have been myths and you guys have done a great job sort of dispelling those myths. Um, talk about what some people have thought and, and how you work to sort of uh, set the record straight, so to speak. Well, I think one of the big myths is that, you know, if I'm in an accident or I'm going to the hospital, that doctors won't save my life if I have a donor designation on my driver's license. And it's, it's just totally untrue. First priority is to save somebody's life. And it's not till someone passes away that they're offered organ donation. I think the second is that, well, if I donate my organs or my tissues or my corneas, I couldn't have an open casket funeral. And many people desire that. And that's untrue. You know, we can make sure that families know that if they donate, they can still have an open casket. All major religions support donation. And uh, we want to make sure that the, the community knows that and that we have uh, many pastors um, and rabbis and imams who we work with every day to communicate uh, from the pulpit what's happening uh, with this particular issue in healthcare. People of color, Black people specifically, are, are more likely to be to have diabetes and high blood pressure and a lot of the things that lead uh, them to needing um, organ donations. Could you talk to those communities specifically about why this month and why they need to sign up? Well, certainly people you know, who have hypertension or diabetes, not all of that leads to organ failure. And I think people need to know that uh, it's important for people to make the decision to say, uh, I'm going to be a donor. And then at the time that it's appropriate, when you pass away, we'll determine suitability at that moment in time of whether those organs can be transplanted. Yeah, because one donation, one donor can save uh, many, many lives in a lot of different ways. Could you talk about that a bit? One donor can save up to eight people with an organ transplant. And then there's things called tissues and also bone or a valve for the heart. All these, as many as 100 people can benefit from one tissue donor. Yeah. And the other way that people donate too is if someone isn't necessarily a registered donor, which is the op optimal way of doing this, if you have a loved one, you can also make that decision for them uh, at their past. I think that's a more difficult uh, thing, not knowing what the person would want. And so it's better to actually do the designation while you're alive and well. But we approach families all the time, and legally, the families can make the decision to donate, even if you hadn't designated on your license. A Minority Donor Awareness Month. It wasn't always a month, so this effort of outreach has been expanded. You know, with Black Lives Matter and with all the things that are happening in our community, this is an important issue in our community um, that we felt it should uh, extend uh, the whole month of August at the very least and to get people to talk about it while you know we're talking about all these issues of about particularly around health care and the disparities in health care and here's one area where organ transplantation that more than half the people getting transplants are people of color and I don't think people recognize that amazing and so so why is it important that people of color become donors well, I think it's important because yeah, there are some uh, genetic factors that, particularly around kidney transplantation, um, and, and we, we do matching uh, of organs, you know, that's important that they're compatible. Um, and there are some genetic factors that um, African-Americans and people of color 
have in common that uh, sometimes have a better success outcome. But, but for the most part, the idea is more and more people who say yes, the more and more people we can get off the waiting list. And uh, we want to make sure that, um, you know, people get back to a healthy life. Howard, Gift of Life has a big event coming up in just a few days. Yes, we wanted to make everybody aware of Gift of Life's Community Strong on uh, August 12th, uh, between 5 and 5.30. And uh, we invite everybody to learn more about organ donation and transplantation. So go to our website at donorsone.org. All right, Howard Nathan, CEO of Gift of Life Donor Program. Keep up the great work and raising awareness. Jerry, thank you. And thank for all you're doing to help uh, make awareness in the community. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I'm walking through the flames. As lecturer and sociologist Dr. Deshane Stokes once said, thoughts and prayers won't stop a speeding bullet. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.